Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the brand new Ridley Scott movie, Napoleon. It says Napoleon on the front, of course it's Napoleon. Everything's been leading up to this over the last couple of months. And boy, do I have a lot to say about this. So, first of all, I want to put it into a little bit of context. I wrote two years ago, give or take, a book about historical accuracy in movies. At that time, I was aware that Ridley Scott was going to make a movie on Napoleon, but he hadn't even started filming it yet. Then the book comes out, and it comes out just after, and therefore already can't be included, Oppenheimer. The book comes out, and two months later, give or take, Napoleon comes out. But actually this year, there have been three movies to do with history, and I find it really interesting the response to all three of these. Now, I have ended up doing an episode on all three of these, so bear with me on this. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on the other two. But with Oppenheimer, the conversation was about its sensational performance and its link to Barbie, or its non-link to Barbie, and while people recognised this was a Christopher Nolan movie and things happen in it and they basically get the chain of events relatively accurate, it's not a piece of history that apart from the fact that there was a Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer was in charge of it, and yes, the bomb was successfully created, it's not something where everybody knows step by step exactly what happened. It's not taught in school. It's not romanticised about People don't write historical fiction around Oppenheimer. They write actual history books around the man. Fair enough. Then we come to The Killers of the Flower Moon, which is about a bit of history. A bit of history that predates Oppenheimer by about 20 years. But because the plight of the Osage peoples and the white community gouging them in an incredibly predatory way, and the way that this very new Federal Bureau of Investigation was brought in to find out how these crimes were actually happening. This is all such niche and little-known history that everybody talked about the performances, the drama, the camera work, etc., rather than what did they actually get right and what was a bit of creative liability. So with 
both of those movies, any historical inaccuracies were brushed aside because they weren't that well known. And then we come to Napoleon. And I find it really interesting, the reaction on the internet about it shows you what a rock star Napoleon is as a brand name in the world of history. My Lord Emperor, I, the Duke of Darling, bring news. The English have reached Waterloo. Good, prepare to attack. Very well. Uh, but first, I would like to ask, why do we want to invade Britain in the first place? I mean, their wine is made of the pee-pee of cows, and their women all have big beards. And the toe-to-toe -to -toe fight that Sir Ridley Scott, aged 85, is having over this, and it tells us a very different story about our relationship with Napoleon rather than our relationship with Oppenheimer or relationship with the Osage peoples. So let's dive into this. Let's, let's get there. So one of the first things he said in an interview when somebody challenged him about historical inaccuracy, he said, get a life. I say get a life. Wow. Then, in a Sunday Times interview, he doubles down on this and says, well, the historians weren't there anyway. He said even stronger stuff, but I would like to keep my clean rating. So all these historians that have piled on you saying, you know, no, 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 hair wasn't no, no, that long, no, I'm not going to get walk into that death. No. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So, sorry, beep. He is a lord of the realm and he's 85 years old and he's got more of a potty mouth than me. But I love Sir Ridley Scott, okay? He is a national treasure. I'm not going to have at him. But I am recording this just after coming out of the movie theatre seeing it. So literally, I've seen it. I've got on a train back home. I've come upstairs, set up my podcasting kit. And this movie is still buzzing around in my head. And there are issues that we need to talk about. First of all, because he went to war with everybody, the movie has been trending on social media. That's great. You want people talking about this. But here's the thing. If you're going to shout out, get a life, who do you think's going to be in the front of the queue for a Napoleon movie? Do you think he's mentioned a lot in drill music from Streatham? I don't think so. Do you think all the gangster rappers in West Coast America. Do you think they're constantly making references to the Battle of Austerlitz? Uh-uh. The people who are going to be at the front of this queue is going to be people who like Napoleon, who are aware of Napoleon. So to say to them, get a life about historical accuracy, you don't want to put anybody off going to see a $200 million movie where traditionally these historical epics do not make their money back. Killers of the Flower Moon has not made its money back in the box office. Now, both Killers and also Napoleon are both co-financed by Apple. These will both appear on Apple. What's interesting is that with Killers of the Flower Moon, that is three and a half hours long. And in my episode about that, which is coming up shortly, I'll just let you into a little secret. I say it's a great film. It could definitely do with half an hour cut out of it and you're not going to lose anything. Whereas this version, and this is something I absolutely agree with Sir Ridley Scott, he goes, nobody's got time to sit in the cinema for more than three hours. Thank you very much. That's why the theatrical version is about two and a half hours long. Thank you. Thank you so much. My bladder also thanks you. However, when it goes on to Apple TV, it's going to have a different cut, which is three and a half hours. He's been very clever in saying, well, actually, the two and a half hour is the director's cut, because I've had to cut it down to the bare minimum. 
The other one is the more leisurely cut, which you could argue is not the director's cut. Okay, fine, whatever. And certainly, we rip through this. But here's the thing. Looking at the responses online, and now having sat through the movie, there is a problem. Oppenheimer, the story, in essence, takes place while we do see before the war and we do see after the war. The core of the story is a five-year period. With Killers of the Flower Moon, it does go over years, but it's an area where we know nothing about, so I don't know if it's five years, seven years, ten years, not entirely sure. But with Napoleon, he is a world-famous figure for more than 20 years. And so, because I'd written this book about historical inaccuracies in movies, I've had quite the cottage industry recently. At the time of recording, it was yesterday. Yesterday is when Napoleon came out. I've been working with a journalist on the Daily Mirror, which is a national newspaper in the UK, and we'd already written an article because she really liked my book. They kept delaying when they were going to release this article about historical inaccuracies in famous movies, and then I ended up emailing her and saying, if it's been delayed this long, why don't we delay it a few weeks, and then we can also put in Napoleon there as well. And you might turn around and say, how can you review Napoleon? I wasn't there to review it, but I'd already seen in the trailer some historical accuracies and some facts. And so we start off with, hey, Ridley Scott's gone to war with historians, but you know what? He's not the only one. And here's the thing. So Ridley Scott, if you ever hear this, huge fan, been following you since I was a kid. I think you're great. If you had rephrased, if somehow, for some reason, you'd actually read my book, I say in the book that a movie is entertainment first. It is never a documentary. Now, if he'd phrased it like that, rather than the far more in-your-face, get-a-life comment, saying, look, I am a director of movies. My job is to entertain first. Being a historian is a distant second. I hope you enjoy my movie. That would have caused less anger. And also, his comments are just disingenuous. When he turns around and goes, what do these historians know? They weren't there in the first place. Who do you think's been keeping his name alive for the last 200 years? How did you find out about it? You may be 85. You're not 285. You found out about it through history books, through stories, because Napoleon is a fascinating story. So there's that, but the other thing compared to those other two movies that have come out in 2023 is with Napoleon, he's so famous, if you start playing fast and loose with the facts, people will notice. And the problem is, if you've got, well, he starts it off in 1793 when the first time we see Napoleon, so we are talking about 22 years is what we're seeing. Actually, there is an an epilogue where you see him on, on St. Helena. Let's call it 25 in total. Fine. How do you fit that into a movie? It's impossible. So you've got to give the greatest hits, and it leads to some real incongruities. Now, I'm not sure in the longer cut whether we'll have some of the gaps filled, but I'll give you two strange time jumps. So they show him at Toulon, which is absolutely true. This is the first time he gets noticed, but he's not a big deal then. And then we go from Toulon, couple of scenes, and then he's in Egypt. Excuse me? The thing that made him a general, the thing that got him onto the front pages of newspapers around Europe, was his conquest of Italy in 1796. It's mentioned there isn't even a scene in Italy. Then you see his 
infamous retreat from Moscow in the cold winter, the, the Russian winter of 1812 into 1813. And the next scene is he is being forced to abdicate and being sent to Elba. You just cut out a year and a half, and the reason why he was sent to Elba has nothing to do with Russia. It's got everything to do with that you're now fighting other battles, including one of the largest battles in pre-20th century history, the Battle of the Nations. This is a really impressive thing, and I appreciate that the budget only goes so far. You might not have budget to have shown that battle. But to say that Russia led to his exile is just simply wrong. But again, how long do you need this movie to make it right? Smartly... Ridley Scott has decided to focus in on the relationship between Josephine and Napoleon, played by Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. Now, here's the thing. An actor is just the age they are. And if you're portraying somebody over 22 years, that's a problem. But Joaquin Phoenix is about the same age as Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. He's not too old to play Napoleon, but he's playing Napoleon at the end of his career. But we have the same guy playing him as a fresh-faced 23-year-old in 1793. What? Meanwhile, Vanessa Kirby is 14 years younger than Joaquin Phoenix. Again, she's the age she is. But the issue is that Josephine was 10 years older than Napoleon. So whereas the relationship... For starters, this movie is funnier than you might first think, particularly if you just see the trailers. There are some really genuinely play-for-laugh sex scenes. There are some great lines. There's a wonderfully petulant line that Napoleon gives to a British ambassador. I laughed out loud maybe three times in the movie. That's how funny it is. It's not just like, oh, there's a very clever tip of the hat to a specific military term from the era. No, it's just outright slapstick at times or just gags. Well done. Let's keep the people entertained. Marvellous stuff. And their relationship, and this is true, at least for the first half of their relationship, Josephine played Napoleon. You know, she's 10 years older. She has had to survive through the terror. She's an aristocratic woman. Her friends, lots of her friends, have been executed. Her first husband was executed. And therefore, she knows how to use her feminine charms to just stay alive, point blank. And that is in the movie. That's there. But it's an older woman dealing with a very romantically immature Napoleon really hadn't had much in the way of relationships before he met Josephine. He was utterly, totally besotted with her. Now, interestingly, because they don't do the Italian thing and they do do things for jokes, they show Josephine having an affair with this French cavalry officer while Napoleon's off campaigning. Although this is happening when he's off campaigning in Egypt. No, 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 no. It happened years earlier while he was campaigning in Italy. And here's the funny bit, which I've written about, which is after he conquers Italy, he's been married to Josephine. He then goes off. He's not expected to conquer Italy. He's the first person to have done this since the Roman Empire era. It sends shockwaves across Europe. And while he's conquering Italy, he spots a palace, which he thinks is going to be perfect for Josephine. And then he writes back to her saying, conquered a country, I've got you a palace, and she doesn't want to go and visit him because she's having so much fun with this cavalry officer. And the government put pressure on her saying, go to your husband, he's just conquered a country, 
the least you can do is go off and have a romantic time with your own husband. This could have been played with the same laughs and also showing the, the weird dynamic between Josephine and Napoleon in the movie, but they've decided to cut around it again. Maybe this is changed in the longer edit, but I don't know. And what I saw is these things happened. They didn't happen in this order, but more importantly, we've got a younger woman playing an older man. And I think it would have been more interesting if they'd picked somebody at least the same age as Joaquin Phoenix or a little bit older. Middle-aged women can be sexy and romantic and powerful as well. And that would have had a different dynamic because the reason why, and this is explained in the movie, Napoleon always loved Josephine, but the reason why he divorced her is he needed an heir. And flat out, Josephine by then was so old, she had become menopausal. You do not think for a moment that Vanessa Kirby, you think in the movie, if you don't know the ages, you think, oh, she must have a medical condition that's led to her not having children, although she's already got two, by the way, by first husband. But Vanessa Kirby is a woman in her prime, and therefore, no, she's not menopausal. But maybe we should have picked somebody else. Winona Ryder, for example. But no, they decided to go in that way, which is a problem in Hollywood. Younger women are considered sexier than older women. That is not fair. That is a trope. So you have a lot going on. And therefore, the Battle of Austerlitz is all over the place. In Egypt, you see this in the trailer. They fire cannons at the pyramids. Now, what Ridley Scott has said is, I use that as shorthand for, and then he conquered Egypt. And I will accept that, but obviously he didn't do that. And then we get the Battle of Waterloo at the end. Spoiler for 200 years worth of history. Yeah, he gets defeated in this. The Battle of Waterloo is all over the place. For starters, the really clever thing that Wellington did is he put most of his forces below the brow of a hill. There was a reverse slope on the hill which dominated the area in front of Waterloo. And therefore, Napoleon had to fight uphill. And more importantly, he couldn't just blast his cannons into the British ranks because most of them were behind the cusp of the hill. Whereas in this, it's about how hard can the British soldiers take it whilst they're being battered by the French cannonades. No, that's not what happened. And then twice in the film, including Waterloo, we see Napoleon charging in a cavalry charge. That never happened. What made Napoleon a brilliant general is he played a military campaign like a game of chess. So he was always up on a hill, a mile away from the battle with his telescope. And then when he saw gaps in the enemy positions, he would then suddenly order his cavalry to flood through the gap. In his own words, never interrupt your enemy while they're making a mistake. This is what Napoleon did. He was brave in the sense that he kept fighting, but he wasn't physically brave. This is another thing. If you wanted to have him battling away in Toulon is the only time he gets wounded in battle right at the beginning when he gets a bayonet in the thigh. That isn't shown. I don't know why not, because if we're looking for him being a bit of an action man, he's young and doesn't affect him for the rest of the film. Why not put that in? That's just an odd choice if you're then going to have him literally charging in in the cavalry. He didn't do that. That misunderstands. There have been other generals. Let's take Richard the Lionheart. The reason why he was the Lionheart is he was in the battle with everybody else. He fought bravely with everybody else. That's what made him a great general. A number of great generals like Alexander the Great, they're in the thick of it. But there are other generals who are like the mastermind chess players. And that's what Napoleon was. He always 
outflanked people. He always found ways intelligently through a situation. But there is an argument that as his armies got bigger, he became less and less creative with his tactics. So in the first half of his career, like in things like the Battle of the Pyramids in Egypt, or if we're talking about Austerlitz, or if we're talking about some of the early battles like in Italy, he's smarter, more strategic than once he goes into Russia, which is just one massive army slogging into another massive army at Borodino. But kind of frustratingly. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The battle scenes are very brief until we get to Waterloo. Indeed, with the Battle of the Pyramids, you cut before the fighting actually happens. So I'm curious as to how much and this would be really expensive stuff to leave on the editing floor, how much actual battling is going to be reinserted in the extended version. But again, if we're focusing in on Napoleon as the man and the lover and the husband, I can understand why you're not necessarily going to spend all your time in the battles, because let's face it, you are going, you would expect some battles with a Napoleon movie, but it may not be the only, if it was just wall-to-wall shooting, that again would be pretty unsatisfying. So I am actually going to plug two of my books. As I've mentioned already, I have a book called Hollywood and History, What the Movies Get Wrong from the Ancient Greeks to Vietnam. So I talk about all eras, including various movies around this time period. And I do make the point that when it comes to the 19th century, there aren't a lot of movies which have those long line of musket men firing away. 
And there's a reason for that, because it's not particularly cinematic as you take nearly half a minute to reload your musket and fire it again. But with Napoleon, Ridley Scott has never made an ugly looking movie. Some of his movies are better than others, but there we go. They do make the point that he's Corsican at the beginning, and Joaquin Phoenix decides to have his American accent. And I think that's completely fine in this movie because it's worth remembering Napoleon's first language was Italian. He was teased when he was in military academy for having such bad French. He was born the same year that Genoa gave France Corsica. Everybody on Corsica spoke Italian. Napoleon Buenaparte, it means beautiful port. It's an Italian surname. And so he was brought up at the time when the Corsicans were fighting the French over independence. He did not consider himself growing up a Frenchman. He considered himself a proud Corsican. And it took years before he decided that, and he deliberately started re-spelling his name in a more conventionally French manner later on. So there's a lot going on in this movie. And literally as I walked in, I had my wife saying, so what did you think of it? It's not as good as Gladiator. But going back to the book for a moment, Hollywood and History, I take Braveheart to task because it flashes up dates and locations. And the assumption is, if everybody's being serious and talking in slightly Shakespearean wording, you assume that they've done their homework. And I'm going to say, well, you have to do that with Napoleon. Where is he? Who's the other army? What's going on here? That's necessary to make some kind of semblance of sense out of 22 years of history. But if you're flashing those things up, don't then play fast and loose with the actual history that you're portraying. The gist is there. I have, coming up soon, an experimental, I'm, I have yet to record this, an experimental episode on somebody else's podcast. Somebody, this is Writers on Film, which I've been asked to be on once, and we're going to have another one about Napoleon where the first part of it is like, okay, just from the movie, because the person who runs the podcast is not a historian, just from the movie, what made Napoleon special? How did he win the Battle of Austerlitz? Things like, I'm going to ask him sort of relatively historical questions or historical context questions, and then we'll go into, was it a good movie or not? So that's book number one. Book number two is, helpfully everybody, I have written The Napoleonic Wars in 100 Facts. Now... There are literally 400-page books on the Battle of Austerlitz or the Battle of Waterloo. It is an intimidating subject. The first book I read on the subject, Battle of the Nations, I think it's called, it's over a thousand pages long. You really have to want to get into the Napoleonic era to start understanding it. And this is one of these areas where there is loads of research, loads of books. Where do I start? If you want a brief overview, The Napoleonic Wars in 100 Facts by Jem Daduchu, which, for the record has just been turned into an audiobook. You're going to get a little sample of the audiobook read by the editor of this podcast, Greg. Oh my God, it's a dream. So he reads it. You can also get it as an ebook. You can also get it as a real actual paperback. It's a great place to start. And maybe Ridley Scott should have read it and found other ways to tell this story quicker. Or nobody told him he had to do the entire life story of Napoleon. Maybe you could have done it the second half of his career, starting with him being crowned emperor and then seeing how, if that's the peak, down we go. I'll give you a technical one. But again, this would have been great visually. So in 1807, you see the signing of the Treaty of Tilsit, where Tsar Alexander I meets Napoleon. And they have a very jovial conversation. 
Eventually, he would go past Tilsit again, but this time it would be as an enemy of Russia and a third time as he retreats away from Russia. But when you have Napoleon and the Tsar of Russia meeting each other, neither wanted to meet on the other person's territory. This would have been a great visual representation of egos and things like that. What they did is they created a very elaborate raft and tent that was chained to the middle of the River Tilsit. So they were meeting on the border, on neutral territory. Neither party had to compromise. It was a great time. And you could just see the two of them having the chat, but you can hear the creaking of the chains, and you could have Joachim Phoenix looking over nervously, like, is this all going to go horribly wrong? Has my hubris doomed me to be drowned or something? But no, they, they didn't decide to go with that. And Joachim Phoenix is great in the movie. So is Vanessa Kirby. What I find interesting is almost nobody else is given enough screen time to make a real impact. Somebody walks up, I'm not even sure who's Murat in it, or Ney, or whoever. Benedot, his famous marshals, none of them get enough screen time. A couple of them appear, and Talleyrand, for example, they will appear with a subtitle at the beginning of a conversation, but nobody's on screen long enough for you to say, oh, that should be a Best Supporting Actor Oscar winner. No, it all hangs on Vanessa Kirby and Joaquin Phoenix, and they do a magnificent job. And the bizarre chemistry they have together is magnificent. It is a great costume drama in the core of it, but when Ridley Scott really kicks off with the action, it's sensational. I'd been waiting, and I guess this might be Sir Ridley Scott's plan, I was waiting for a really meaty battle scene that would last more than three minutes, and I got it with Waterloo. Like I say, there are problems historically with it, but if you just want to see it on screen, and when they get into the infantry squares to be against the French cavalry, which did genuinely happen in the battle, oh, it's just magnificent. It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully choreographed and edited. As a British person, it's hard not to get a little misty-eyed at that moment and go, woohoo, this is brilliant stuff. But we also have to be careful about what is the lasting impact. Now, what I would say is what's great is because... So Ridley Scott has kicked off a bit on this, and because this is a big movie, big budget, and it's nice that people are talking about Napoleon, rather than, let's say, Love Island, or what are you getting for Secret Santa this Christmas, or whatever. Napoleon is an important person in 19th century history. He just is. He fought on three different continents against so many different enemies. He shaped Europe. He is an important person, and to have people talk about it, and to have people say, well, they got this wrong, at least we're having this conversation. It's great that one of my teenage sons, I said, you know, do you want to go and see it with me? And he goes, no, I'm going with a friend. He goes, depressingly, none of my friends know anything about Napoleon, but they're interested in this film. Great. What a great place to start. And again, if... Scott had started off with saying, I'm hoping to get people as excited about Napoleon as I am about him as a topic. And then they can find out what really happened in a history book or something like that. But no, for some reason, he's, he's got very defensive over the movie. And it shouldn't be surprising that he's made stuff up. Gladiator is one of my all-time favorite movies. I've done a whole episode on it. It has lots of historical inaccuracies in it. Is it a great film? 
it's an absolute five-star classic. It deserved all the Oscars. When you watch it again, if it's been a while, you watch it again and go, good Lord, this is everybody bringing their A game from sound to editing to acting to screenplay. Oh, it's just all monumental. Well done, everybody involved in Gladiator. And Ridley Scott has made a load of historical movies. He did The Last Duel, which again has historical inaccuracies in it. He's done The Kingdom of Heaven. Baldwin, the leper king, is alive in that one. He's so weird. I can understand why you'd want to put him in, but he's dead by the time of the events actually portrayed in the movie. So what Ridley Scott has shown every single time from The Duelists, which is his first movie set during the Napoleonic era, through your gladiators, Robin Hood's 1492. There are loads of historical movies that he's done. All of them have proven again and again he would rather dazzle you with visuals, he would rather entertain you than crack out a history book and rather dryly recite everything that genuinely did happen. And I'm okay with that. I think that there's been enough conversation around this and there's enough YouTube videos and podcasts, etc. saying, well, they got this wrong, they got that wrong. But here's the thing. I enjoyed the film. I am not saying it's as good as Gladiator. I'm going to give it four stars. I genuinely can't wait to see the longer version of it on Apple. But whereas with Gladiator, I'd happily go and see it in two days after release with somebody else. I don't want to go this weekend and see Napoleon again. It's it's a bit much, and there is, quite frankly, a lot of talking in rooms, whispered conversations next to candles and stuff like that, which is it's fine. But I, I, I perhaps could have done with half an hour less of the talking and half an hour more of people shooting each other. It does say at the end, like any of these good historical movies, you, it all fades to black and then you get white writing filling things in. And it says... He was involved in 61 battles. Wow. Why then do we only see four maximum? One of those you don't even see anybody shooting in anger. So, yeah. It, it, but then again, he is impossible to put in a movie. If Ridley Scott had decided to do a trilogy of films, even then that would be hard to fit it all in. And who's going to give him what, $600 million to make that? That might be a bit too rich for something like Apple. But again, Apple doesn't mind if it's a much longer movie. What they want is content. And the longer you're on Apple TV, the more happy they are and the more you might potentially then go off and watch Hijack or Silo or whatever. That's the idea of content. And therefore, part of the reason that even if Napoleon doesn't make a ton of money in the theatres, and I suspect it won't. At 200 million, it has to get to around about a 500 million dollar box office. I don't think Napoleon's going to get there. I'd love it to me to be wrong because that would tell the rest of Hollywood we want more historical movies. But if you just see the amount of acreage of web pages and tweets, etc., about Napoleon, this is showing that there is interest out there. But with Apple, there going to swallow some of these costs they just want to say we've got a Ridley Scott movie on on Apple we've got Martin Scorsese movie on Apple I'm going to guess one of those two movies will win some Oscars and Apple would be very pleased by going yes we're an Oscar winning channel again first ever streamer to get best picture Oscar was Coda on Apple not your Netflixes and not your Amazon Primes and they'd both spent a fortune on other prestige movies so Apple seems to have found a bit of the secret source to to get this stuff happening 
I'm beginning to sort of trail off, so I'm just going to remind you again. If this sounds interesting, I would recommend you check out my books, Hollywood and History. We're, we're coming towards Christmas. Maybe this is something to ask for Christmas or maybe get for the history geek in your life or your dad. I've heard a lot of people say Napoleon's a dad film, which I think is really offensive because it's a good movie. It's an intelligent drama. Surely that should be for anybody who's old enough to go and see the film. It has some very bloody scenes in it, by the way. Just, just a brief warning on that. So, Hollywood and history, what the movies get wrong from ancient Greece to Vietnam. Jem Daduchu might check it out. I take you all the way through history, as the title suggests. And if you actually want to know more after, if Napoleon sort of made you think, I want to know more, like I say, audiobook. You can just walk along listening to The 100 Facts, or you can get it as an ebook or a paperback. And that is The Napoleonic Wars in 100 Facts by Jem Daduchu. So there we go. We're now going to go over. And, and as I said, the 100 Facts books, all of them in the series, I've written four of them, but other people have written some of the other ones. They're meant to be introductions too. So if you are the sort of person who's read a 400-page book on the Battle of Austerlitz, well, you probably were shouting at the screen in the movie, and my book is not going to be the place for you because you're already past that. But if you want an overview of 25 years of history covering multiple continents, this is a very good place to start. Now you get a few of the actual episode moments from the 100 Facts book as read by Greg Chapman. Fact 61. Thomas Cochrane finished Nelson's job. While it's true that the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 prevented any major challenges to the supremacy of the Royal Navy for over a century, that's not to say there weren't attempts to do just that. Trafalgar had destroyed a large Franco-Spanish fleet but not the entire French navy. By 1809, a sizable force of 15 French warships had gathered in the Bay of Biscay. The fleet posed a serious threat to shipping. If it broke out into the Atlantic, it could attack merchant shipping or make a dash for the Caribbean. Or it could spearhead an invasion of England or Ireland. In short, it was a threat that had to be neutralised. To prevent the threat from becoming a reality, the Royal Navy had been busy bottling up the French warships. Lord Mulgrave, the first Lord of the Admiralty, decided that an attack using fireships would finish them off. With this in mind, he sent a fleet led by Lord Gambier, whose second-in-command was Thomas Cochrane, Fact 30. The idea was to launch a few old ships stripped of everything valuable, including the crew, filled with flammable substances. These would be ignited and the ships sailed towards the enemy shipping, which would either run aground in panic or be set on fire. It was a plan that had previously worked well with tightly packed ships, most famously with the Spanish Armada in the 16th century. Mulgrave should have had concerns because, while it was a plan with precedent, Gambia openly declared it a horrible and anti-Christian mode of warfare. Gambia became even more reticent when Cochrane created several explosion ships, fire ships with added barrels of gunpowder, shells, grenades and pretty much every nasty explosive they could get their hands on. The attack was carried out on the 11th of April, a day that turned out to have perfect weather, according to Cochrane's own diaries, in which he comments that a strong wind was blowing in the right direction. But there were two problems. Firstly, as Cochrane led his group of fire explosion ships towards the French, he received no backup from Gambier, who should have led the rest of the fire ships along with a fleet, which would rein in cannon fire to finish the job. Secondly, one of the fuses on an explosion ship detonated sooner than intended, so the damage it caused was minimal. 
Cochrane returned to one of the explosion ships when he realised the ship's dog had been left on board. Even with only half the planned ship due in the attack, a third of the French fleet was burnt, sunk or grounded. Cochrane was a popular hero, but he always riled senior admiralty staff, so Gambier was given the credit even though he had tried to sabotage the attack. The two men constantly argued over who had won the battle, clashing even in the Houses of Parliament. However, the most important outcome was that the French never again dared to raise a fleet against the British. Fact 40. The Old Guard was the Best Guard By 1804 to 1805, Napoleon had been leading his troops for a decade. Some of the men in his ranks had been with him from the first campaigns and had followed him to Italy, Egypt and beyond. Napoleon's elite bodyguard was known at first as a consular guard, but later as the Imperial Guard. This in turn was split by experience into the young, middle and old guard. It was the old guard who were Napoleon's most feared troops. In the beginning, Napoleon's personal guard would have been in the hundreds, then the low thousands. But as the number of his achievements grew, so did this elite group. By 1812, it numbered a 100,000 and was an army in its own right. Membership of the old guard was a prized military honour. A privilege reserved for them alone was the right to complain about any facet of the military without fear of reprimand. Some even complained when Napoleon was present. Within their own forces, they were Les Guignards, the Grumblers. Yet for all their grumbling, they never wavered and always did as ordered on the field of battle. They faced annihilation at the Battle of Waterloo when, for the only time in its history, the middle guard broke and retreated without orders. However, the old guard and the young guard stood firm, allowing the rest of Napoleon's forces and Napoleon himself to leave the battle. They survived, but had been nearly wiped out by cannon fire and cavalry charges. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.